let me welcome you again uh, to Christ Church. Those of you who are visiting, glad uh, to have you with us. My name is Nate. I'm the, uh, I'm the pastor here. We're looking at the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters of Genesis between now and Christmas. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Genesis uh, 6. Um, we're going to be spending several weeks looking at the uh, Noah and, and the flood and the ark and, uh, you know, Back, you know, back when the Bible's written, paper wasn't, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of paper around. It was kind of valuable. And uh, Moses, who wrote Genesis, gave four chapters to Noah and the ark in the flood. So that means there's something important there. It's a, it's a difficult passage, but we're going to spend several weeks uh, looking at it. So this is kind of the first week on that. So you can turn to, uh, to Genesis chapter 6, or the passage is printed for you in the bulletin. Um, Let's look at Genesis. I, I've kind of taken uh, Genesis 6, Genesis 7, and kind of broken them up. So we're going to look at the, the issue of the flood this week. Then we're going to talk about the ark and that, the ark. And then, yeah, you know, I'm trying to break it up into, into themes. So I, I broke the passage up a little bit. We're looking at starting in Genesis uh, 6, chapter 1, and then we're going to jump over to chapter 7. So um, this is God's word. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took them as uh, and they took them as their wives, any they chose. Then the Lord said, "My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh; his days shall be a hundred and twenty years." The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they, were, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom... I have created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them from the earth. And skipping down to chapter 7, verse um, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, On the seventeenth day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. uh, And then skipping down to uh, verse 17. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land 
in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you uh, that your word... Uh, does not just tell us what we want to hear, but it tells us the truth. And it tells us the truth about you. And uh, Lord, we know that you are bigger than we could ever imagine. You're far more holy, far more just, far more gracious, far more merciful than uh, anything that we have ever seen. So we ask that you would be our teacher. Give us your spirit to open our hearts um, that we would both Uh, fear you and uh, uh, delight in you and be assured uh, and rest assured in your love and your grace. Give us these things, these things that seem so opposite to us. And um, Lord, I pray that you would give me your spirit as I teach, um, as you take your perfect and holy word and speak through uh, an imperfect, fallible human. And would you bring your word to your people in love. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to, there's a lot of of questions that come up in the flood. I'm not going to cover all of them in this uh, sermon. There are other ones that will come up next time. So if I don't answer all your questions this time, uh, they might be coming later. Um, A couple days ago, I was working on the sermon at at Pure Bliss, Andy and Nick's new dessert place. And uh, Lisa uh, Van Hoffwigen came in with her sister. And I was telling her, yeah, I'm working on my sermon. It's the flood. And and she was saying how the... uh, there was a friend of hers who had said, you know, it's kind of funny that in uh, the flood is kind of, in, in Noah and the Ark is kind of this staple for children's stories, you know, children's Bibles, children's songs, is, uh, you know, kids singing about the Ark, and, you know, it's basically God destroying violently all the humans in the earth except for one family, and it's, uh, this is, this sounds like a good kid song, you know, I, I don't know if you've for those of you who have kids, you've been over into our nursery, and there's this mural on the wall, and there's the rainbow, and the boat, and the water, and there's this giraffe with heart-shaped spots on it, and the lion with the rainbow mane, and everyone smiling. And, you know, you're not thinking, wow, under those water, you know, are drowning all of humanity and all breath. You know, this is a little, this is a little weird. I don't know if we, we got the point of what's happening in this, the severity of this story, um, and I think, it, in fact, it's passages like this that are actually deeply troubling uh, to a lot of people when uh, they think about the Bible and say, now, come on, is, is God judging and flooding the whole earth, wiping people out violent? I mean, isn't this a little primitive, right? You know, the big, angry God who's raging out and, um, and lashing out at people. I mean, aren't we, aren't we beyond that? Isn't that narrow-minded? You know, the wrathful God, uh, you know, isn't that the kind of thing that get, causes people to fly airplanes into buildings when they believe stuff like that? There's this big, angry, wrathful God in there. And, uh, and this is, you know, this is a trouble, uh, troubling path. You know, I saw a bumper sticker just the other day. Non-judgment day is near. Not, you know, God is not, God being a judge, it, it gets under our skin, and it's, it just crawls. It makes our stomachs turn. God is a judge. But one of the things that's interesting uh, is that, you know, a place like Bellingham, even the most progressive, liberal, you know, visualized peace kind of uh, person, all of Bellingham, 
deep down wants judgment. I mean, social justice is, you know, justice to the world, justice to the poor. I mean, that's a huge progressive value. Is that, you know, we look at, uh, you know, war and oppression and, uh, um, and we're angered by it. We want it to be stopped. We're outraged by it. You know, uh, child abuse. Um, uh, you know, women not having any rights in the Middle East is outraging to us. We're angry at it. It needs to stop. And so uh, what's interesting is on the one hand, uh, we in Bellingham are very comfortable that we can be angry about, about the evil that's in the world. But for some reason, when God's angry about it, that's an offense to us. You know, that, that uh, God, it would be, uh, that's offensive that, that God would get angry. Don't you expect that God would get angry about, about the evil in the world? And... Um, in fact, when people, uh, you know, are being outraged about uh, violence in the world, oppression in the world, uh, wrongdoing in the world, what they're assuming is that we live in a world where there is a standard. There is a way that humans are supposed to treat one another. And if people are not treating each other that way, it cannot be tolerated. That's our assumption. That's, the, that's what, you know, the most progressive liberal assumption, the most tolerant person in the world, that's their assumption, is there are certain ways that can't, there are certain ways people treat one another that cannot be tolerated. And um, what we see in this text is that the world is crying out, it is, it's crying out for a judge. And having the power to be a judge, to kind of bring justice, is uh, a dangerous power for someone to have. You know, that, that happens all, all the time in the world. In the name of justice, people do all kinds of violence and, and wrongdoing to one another and hurt one another in the name of justice. And that's why we need the God of Genesis 6 to be the one who is the judge. We need to let him be the one. We need to let him be the one who brings justice. And um, one of the things that we also see is that um, whenever God is a judge, it means that he is a rescuer. It means that he's on a rescuing mission. He's, he's delivering. He's saving at the same time. And so uh, to put it another way, these are kind of the three points we're going to look at. The first thing is that we are as humans actually far worse than we ever thought. That's why the world is crying out for a judge. It, it, we're actually worse than we thought. And secondly, that God is actually far holier than we thought. And that's why, that's why we want him to be the judge is because he's the holy one. But lastly, this text also shows us that grace is far more surprising than we thought. So we're worse. God is holier, but grace is far more surprising than we thought. And we're going to kind of look at those three things as we look at this text. So, uh, first of all, we, we humans, our hearts are actually far worse. Are actually far worse than we thought. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you know, I, I, in my experience, the kind of discomfort about God being a judge, one of the things that's discomforting about that is, is the image that we have of a judge is, you know, the guy with the, the black robe. He's up on the bench. And uh, we want him to be rational. We want him to be uh, impartial. We don't want him to have, you know, if, if, if a judge is judging a case, we don't want him to have any... Uh, um, you know, skin in, in his judgment. It's impartially stand back, unemote, just take, give me the facts, um, and, and I'm going to make my verdict. And the problem, you know, that's kind of, 
you know, disconcerting because we think of God as God's loving, God's involved in our life, God's listening, God cares about us. He's not sitting back coldly indifferent and just making verdicts on our life. Uh, and that, and when we think of God being a judge, God bringing wrath, we think of a coldness and a distance. And you know, where's the where's the the relational connection? Um, but the fact is that this passage. Um, shows us that God is not cold, he's not distant, and it's actually, this is a very moving passage. Um, you know, Genesis, the book of Genesis begins with God is this passionate, devoted artist who's com- coming in and he's singing, basically, the world into existence. And all the, all the stars, the, 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 the universe, um, all of the life forms, the plants, the, um, you know, we've, we've been watching uh, uh, Life, the, the BBC uh, series life and uh you know they have this this image of sardines that 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 go in these beautiful schools that are just swimming together and this is god just saying all these beautiful schools and harmony and ecosystems together and and he he sings into existence uh these uh one animal that are his image bearers that will be like him and he's devoted and he's involved. And there's this wonderful refrain in the song of Genesis 1 that God saw everything that he made and it was good. And God saw everything that he saw, all that he made, and it was good. There's this delight, this satisfaction. And at the end of the song, God, God looks at the world, he looks at the trees and the animals, everything he says is very good. It's satisfying. And then he takes the seventh day to enjoy it, <laughs> to delight in it. And... Uh, God sees the world and it's good. And then there's this um, devastating verse in our passage in verse 3. And it says that the Lord saw. God saw that the world was very good. Now we're in Genesis 1, Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. From Genesis 1 to Genesis 6, God goes from this passionate artist, devoted, involved, loving, satisfied, to really, this, the, verb, the, verb, the word that's used here in Hebrew is, is the, for he's sorry, he's grieved, is unsatisfied longing. That God had a longing for his world that's unsatisfied. It's fallen far short. And um, he's not distant. He's not impartial judge. He's not the guy in the black suit sitting back. I, I have no say in this. He's, he's, he's like a, you know, a husband who's given his heart to a woman. He's bound his heart. He's bound his heart to this creation. He's bound his heart to, uh, to humanity. And now he's looking at it, and uh, it's falling apart. And so the question is, um, why, the, why the destruction? If God's so involved... In humanity, so devoted to it, I mean, a flood that's going to wipe out humanity, cleanse humanity, you know, brutal. Where is that coming from? Well, one of the things that's, uh, you know, most penetrating about this passage is that God says that there was evil in the world. And, uh, and when we think of that, you know, we're thinking uh, drug lords, you know, one of the guys leading some cartel down in, uh, you know, Mexico or South America, you know, um, uh, evil people, pe- murderers, um, uh, child abusers, you know, um, sexual predators, something like this, brutal. And yet, it's, the thing that disturbs God here is that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. 
uh, it was their thought life. Now, you know, most people, when they think about God being a judge, you know, I'm going to have to stand before God, I'll have to give it account. God's evaluating my life, what does God think of me? Uh, you know, we generally say, listen, you know, I make mistakes, you know, I'm not perfect. Come on, like, I know that, I'm not perfect, but you know, I'm all right, guy, listen. Uh, you know, I'm not so bad, I mean, look at these guys over here, I'm, I'm far better. You know, I haven't murdered anyone, I, I haven't steal, stolen, I, I show up for work on time. You know, I, I, I have a college fund for my kids. Listen, and I make some mistakes, you know, yeah, I get angry here and there, but what's the big deal? And, uh, you know, one of the things as a pastor that, you know, I've just, in talking with many of you, um, many people in our culture, um, a big thing in the church right now, a big church thing in many churches, is people want community. They want to have real relationships with people. They don't want to just know what, what did you do for your job, what did you work for. People want to know who you really are. They want your heart to, they want people's hearts opening up to one another. You know, in fact, in, in this church, oftentimes people, when people say, wow, that was a really great time together, it was when someone's, what was in their heart, who they really were, opened up. And they said, yes, that's what we want. We want to be, I want to really know each other on that level. And, uh, and one of the things that we, um, and, uh, Oh, let me. And I think you know. Sometimes in marriages, you know, uh, sometimes a gal will, will get this more. You know, she's trying to wants the guy to open up. You know, tell me what are you thinking? What's going on in there? Like, you know, I know you're doing stuff. Open up to me. And but at the same time, if we could really know what was going on in each other's hearts, like I could listen into your thoughts. And you know that su- you know the superpower question. Like, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? I mean, we would not want to know what each other was thinking. There would be no friendships. There'd be no marriages. If we really, you know, if we, dis- Trevor was saying this, if, you, if we displayed on a screen for a few hours everything that was going through your mind, you know, would, we wouldn't think that highly of you. We, we don't want really that deep connection. And what, but what God does, when God bound himself to us as humanity, he says, I want to be so close to you, I want the real you. And so that all of our thoughts, everything that's in our heart, the real us, is just poured out before him all the time. He sees it, sees everything. And when we, and, and that's, because that's, that's the kind of relationship he wants. That's how close he wants to be to us. And when you realize that, when you face that, that the things that I'm really thinking, the things that I'm really doing, that God's, God's, that's all before him, it will not surprise you that God's offended that is an offense, if you think of the lust, if you think of the envy, you think of the bitterness, the, um, the way we judge people, say, the way we lash out at people in our hearts, uh, people that do very small things to us, the way we do that, God sees it all. And that's the thing that's troubling to him in this text. And let me, let me just say that, uh, you know, if you, you want to grow spiritually, uh, you want to be close to God, you want to know God's love, the beginning of it is to, is to really face what Genesis 6 is saying, is that the intentions of our hearts are wicked. And that God, though he's a judge in Christ, there's, a, there, there's the forgiveness of sins. And when you see how um, kind of disturbing we are, that becomes so precious, that, that God forgives our sins in Jesus and he pays for them. That becomes precious. But, um, and that's the beginning of a spiritual life. But... Um, so it's, it's based on our thought life that God judges humanity. But then it goes on. Uh, look, look at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, 
and the earth was filled with violence. And it goes on in verse 13, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them, through, uh, through humanity. So, uh, you know, God sees that the fruit of kind of, you know, these intentions of our hearts, wicked hearts, you know, bent, troubled hearts, is that we actually do lash out and act, uh, you know, hurt one another. Um, Jesus says the same thing. Let me, this is Mark 7. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Try to go through that list. See how many of those things are happening in your heart. Jesus pierces us. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Now, the relationship between kind of actual violence, the way we hurt each other, and God's vengeance is very, it's very interesting. There's a, a theologian named Miroslav Wolf. He's a, um, I think he's at Yale now. Um, wrote a book in the 90s called uh, Exclusion and Embrace, which is, I mean, it's an amazing work on uh, the application of the Christian gospel, of, of uh, the grace that's in Jesus uh, to war-torn communities. So, uh, you know, and how the gospel can actually stop violence in the world. You know, one of the big problems of the world is, you know, there's, you got a couple tribes, you killed my brother, now I'm going to go kill your whole family, and now your tribe's going to come and have war with my tribe, and the, the violence just kind of escalates. You know, it happens in a home, right? You say kind of a cutting word to your wife, and it kind of blows up, and all of a sudden, and then, and then you're bringing up past things, and all of a sudden, violence and hurt towards one another just kind of escalates. And, um, and Wolf, is, uh, he's actually Croatian. So he's personally seen all kinds of civil war in Yugoslavia and, uh, and uh, in the Balkans uh, in his lifetime. And that's in the middle of what he's writing and is, is, is to a war-torn community. And at the end of Wolf's book, he says uh, something in essence, which says, you know, if some, you know, someone from Bellingham went down to the, the Balkans and they were going to give a talk to... Um, you know, some community that uh, was totally, you know, genocide, had just been ravaged by, by den- genocide, and try to give a talk on, you know, you, you need to um, uh, channel God's kind of nonviolent love through you. God, God is not violent. You need to channel it. You know, visualize peace. And, uh, and if these people, you know, their, uh, uh, their sisters and daughters have been raped, um, their houses have been uh, plundered and burned and leveled, uh, their brothers and fathers have had their, their necks, uh, their throats slit. And you say, you know, visualize peace. He says, you are not living in reality. You are living in the little comforts of Bellingham uh, where you have your freedoms and, uh, and there's not this brutality happening. You don't understand what's going on there. And th- he's a Croatian. And he says very profoundly, he says, you know what those people need? They need to know that there is a judge who will come and who will uh, bring justice on, on the brutality that's been done to them. Physical, violent um, judgment will come. And only when they know that can they say, okay, I'm going to move towards these people in forgiveness. Only are they going to not retaliate. Because they know justice will come, and it will be brutal. And it will match the, the hurt that's been done to me. He says, you need that. You need the gospel. 
And so, you know, up in North America, kind of liberal, uh, you know, progressive kind of place, it's very easy for us to say, oh, how primitive, God the judge. But on a world scale, if you take serious how bad humanity is, that we are worse than you think, you can't get rid of this. You can't get rid of God the judge. We need it. And we need it to love each other. You know, it's not just in war-torn communities. It's in, it's in relationships. You're going to have people who are going to do really cruel things to you. And the Bible says the way that you can actually not retaliate against them is, is one thing is to say, God will, God's going to judge that. They will have to give an account for that to God. And so now I'm going to move towards them in love. I'm going to seek reconciliation. And, uh, and I can trust that, that God, God is going to, um, that God is just. And so the key, you know, the first thing to understanding, how, do, how can we reconcile that God is, you know, God is violent, God is vengeful, is to first understand how seriously uh, dis- disturbing our own hearts are on a world scale and on a personal scale. But, um, but the fact that God is a judge kind of brings us, uh, uh, you know, that God does act aggra- aggressively, decisively in the flood kind of brings us to our second point, that, um, that God, God is far holier than we thought. Um, another reason why uh, I think that God's, you know, God's wrath is a subject that doesn't sit well with us is that, um, you know, generally when we think of kind of rage, aggression, um, people acting out towards one another, it's uh, generally what's happening, you know, our only experience of that is, is people and, and how people are doing that to one another. And so, uh, you know, generally speaking, like, uh, the reason that people uh, lash out and are angry and, you know, wrath kind of comes out of people is because they've been wounded, right? They, you know, they have some... Uh, a sense of shame or being belittled and and what they're doing is the pain of someone hurting them they want to deflect the pain and put it on someone else right so you know i've uh someone shames me my my parents shamed me or something like that and the pain is too unbearable i want to deflect it off me i want to put it on someone else and that's all kind of our only experience of why do people get angry is they're, they're trying to, um, to take their sense of be, feeling small and put it on someone else. And, you know, sometimes, you know, we might not have articulated it that way, but um, that kind of petty anger is really the only lens that we often have to understand God's justice, God's, God's wrath. And so, you know, in a case of a text like this, you know, you look at verse 5. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of, of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And we say, there's the pain. There's the, the God's been shunned. And then in the very next verse, uh, we, might, we might read this as God deflecting the pain and throwing it back in humanity's face. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. As if, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't handle uh, the pain, and so he's throwing it back, you know, on humanity. And some of us say, you know, this is an overreaction. I mean, you know, people do wrong things to me. I'm, uh, I can handle it. You know, I have the emotional maturity to say, okay, you know, I didn't like that, but I'm not going to just lash out and rage, um, lash out and rage against them. Uh, I can get along. I can get along with people all right. You know, can't God do that? Can't God kind of internalize and deal with the pain? Or does he have to, why the rage? 
And um, let me just tell you, this it's not even close to the picture that we have of God in the story. And the first thing to realize is that, you know, this sin, the people, violence happening to one another, started a long time ago before Genesis 6. Actually, you know, Cain and Abel, uh, Adam and Eve, you know, Adam uh, turning his back on, on God, and God says, where are you? You know, Cain uh, kills his brother. He says, where's your brother? He's pursuing them. You know, uh, Lamech is a, a polygamist who kills a young boy. And, uh, and God's just patient. He's still giving Lamech's sons um, gifts and skills and, and letting them prosper in the earth. And thousands and thousands and centuries and centuries of, of years go by. And God is, is, is pursuing people and waiting for them to come to him. He's not lashing out. There's not this, this pain that God just all of a sudden, like an angry dad, just reacts in anger. Um, God is patient. And, uh, and then we, it's, it's after really thousands of years of, of humanity's kind of rebellion that we come to this passage. And then, you know, this is, I'll admit this, this is kind of a weird passage. Uh, look at, read verse 1. Um, when, the man, uh, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took, uh, took as their wives any they chose. Now, there's a lot of debate about who are the sons of God. And I'm, I'm not going to go into all the details of it, but I, essentially I think that the sons of God are like angelic beings or demons or something that have come and taken human wives. This, is, this was the opinion of all the ancient rabbinic scholars. The church fathers thought this. It appears that Peter and Jude in the New Testament both thought this, that something of uh, angels and humans are kind of uh, intermarrying. And, you know, the passage also talks about the Nephilim. The Nephilim are, are like these giants. It's basically this nation of Shaquille O'Neal's that, you know, lived in the earth at one time. And, uh, and uh, you know, I wish I could, I, I'd like to talk more about that, but it's just not the burden um, of this passage. Um, but essentially what it seems is happening is, is that humanity is in total rebellion against God. They say, we don't care what you have to say about how we live. We're going to do whatever we want. And, and this has been kind of the culminating thing, is humans saying, okay, angels and humans uh, are going to marry each other. And, um, and then this is what God says. Uh, verse 3, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now again, you know, some people say the 120 years is before the flood. People lived for centuries, and then after the flood, you know, you won't live past 120 years. But I think really what this is talking about is that God's saying, millennium have already gone past, we're at the breaking point, and now I'm going to give you a whole other 120 years where I'm going to turn back to me, repent, you know, come back to me, come out of rebellion, stop the violence, uh, admit, the, admit what's in your heart and come back to me and let me, ch- let me change you. And uh, God is not this petty, short-fused tyrant, you know, who's lashing out of his pride, you know, this God whose pride has been challenged, he's going to lash out. That's not what it is at all. You know, uh, Ezekiel 18 says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. So a part of God's holiness is that God is reluctant to judge. He's reluctant to, to pay our due. But, um, you know, I've shared with you that uh, as a teenager, I was a really terribly rebellious 
teenager to my, uh, to my parents. I, when I was 15, I, I dropped out of school, and I absolutely refused to do anything they tell me. You say, we want you to uh, do your homework. No, I will not do my homework. Um, you need to be home at a certain time. We don't want you out hanging out with your friends, uh, you know, drinking, smoking weed. No, I'm not going to do that. Absolute, that was in our house. You know, my, my parents, did they want what was best for me? Absolutely. They, they loved me. I mean, they, they cared for me. And, uh, and they, I remember um, this went on, my parents trying to make good situations, trying to get me back involved in sports, trying to get me to do schoolwork. And there was just defiance. I don't care what you say. I'm not going to do, I, 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 you don't own me. And there came a point where my parents said, all right, this is it. We want you home at 6 o'clock every night. You're going to do your homework. You're going to have dinner with us. And you're not going to be out hanging out with your friends. Things are changing. And um, I remember clearly where I was standing. And I said, no, too bad. And, uh, you know, you imagine that's heartbreaking for my I mean, my parents love me. They, 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 and they're good parents. And... Uh, and they loved me. And I said, no, I don't care what you have to say. And, and I remember I was 15 year old, and they had to say, well, then you are not welcome in this home. They had to say to their 15-year-old son, you know, was that their pride being challenged and they're trying to deflect their anger back onto me and say, uh, how dare you? No. They were doing everything to try uh, to have me live civilly in their home. But, they, but at some point, they have to say, this is our house we are a family, and you are not acting like a family, so you cannot be here. And what Genesis 6 is saying is that God, at some point, has to say that. He will say that. And just like uh, with my parents, at some point, it was a decisive action that said, this is enough. And I did, you know. I, I was, you know, left home for three months, and they'd come and visit me at Tony Maroney's Pizza and make sure I was still alive and... Uh, uh, and um, and it, it, you think that was gut-wrenching for them? Of course it was gut-wrenching. And what that means is that this flood, God saying, I will not tolerate this violence in the earth, is gut-wrenching for God. It's gut-wrenching for him, but he will do it. He will make that decision. It's the right decision. And, um, but a rule of thumb in reading the Bible is that whenever you see God's judgment, judgment never gets the last word. And grace is always is close on the heels. And uh, so that leads to our last point, is that grace is far more surprising than we ever thought. Um, you know, um, what, what's encouraging about this passage is that, you know, God says that he's going to destroy the earth, and then right after, one of the most important words in the whole Bible shows up. Uh, look at, let's look at verses 7 and 8 again. So the Lord said, I will from the face, uh, I, or, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But, but, there's the important word. The, uh, God's justice is coming, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Or you, you could translate that, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And, um, you know, I'll tell you, this verse, this is kind of one of the reasons why I don't believe in aliens. Um, I'm, can you figure that out? Does that, you see that kind of, no. Uh, let me tell you why I don't believe in aliens. Um, the, uh, you know, 
God made, uh, the universe has something, somewhere between 100 billion and a trillion galaxies in it. And um, each of those galaxies, you know, our galaxy is Milky Way. It's kind of a moderate-sized galaxy, about 200 billion stars. And um, so God made this huge, vast universe, stars, planets, I mean, unimaginable. And there was this one galaxy that had something special in it. And in that galaxy of 200 billion stars, there was this one, uh, one star that had a solar system. That in that solar system, there was this one planet that, uh, you know, it was nothing really remarkable about the planet, not huge. Uh, um, you know, this wasn't a very important star. Uh, it's not in the center of the galaxy or anything. It's just kind of in a random place. But God liked it. And God uh, made this one planet, our planet, and he made life on that planet. And then there's just, on that planet, there's, um, you know, millions of different life forms, different species and stuff like that. And of those species, God said there was one in particular that was special that he made in his image. And of all the, uh, all the nations, uh, you know, ethnic groups, uh, diversity of that one uh, species, there was one nation that was not particularly remarkable, uh, Israel, uh, they weren't big, they weren't strong, they weren't righteous, it wasn't anything special. And he said, that's my special one. And on it goes, there was one tribe, Judah, and there was one line in Judah that was the line of, of King David. And of the line of King David, there was one special son of that line, Jesus. What, that's just God's, it's part of his personality to make a huge, vast universe and say there was this one tiny, unremarkable planet that was, uh, I liked it. <laughs> and uh, I made it mine. I chose it. And uh, there was something special. There, you know, this kind of quirkiness of God that he just picked it and he liked it. And uh, what we have here in the midst of a, a universal judgment is that God chooses an exception, Noah. Uh, you know, there's nothing really remarkable about it. It just says God, uh, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, someone might say, you know, well, there is something remarkable about Noah, right? It says in verse, uh, in verse uh, um, 9, I guess it is, that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So you're going to say, oh, that's why Noah is special. But you have to get the ordering right. The Bible always keeps this ordering. First, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then he became a righteous man. That's always the ordering of the, of the Bible, is that God shows us grace first. Noah had evil intentions in his heart. Noah was a sinner. Noah was wicked. And God showed, showed grace to him. And that's one of the central things of, of what God does in the midst of his judgment, is he, he pursues people, he chooses people, and he shows grace to them. And we say, you know, why does he, why does he show grace to some people and not to other people? I, have, I, I, can't, I do not have an answer to that. But it is so important that the central, central to Christian faith is that salvation belongs to the Lord. And that, you know, that punk kid, tell my parents, I don't care what you think. I, I certainly des- did not deserve a new life. I didn't deserve God's grace, and he just gave it to me. I, I didn't even pursue him. I didn't even look for him, and, 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 and he gave it to me. And the important thing about that is that if we believe in a judge and that God is going to judge people, that we must understand that the only way we pass that judgment is by his grace to us. 
Because otherwise, if we think, oh, look how good I am. Uh, you know, I'm righteous. I did everything I was supposed to. And God loves me and I'm on his side. Then what, how are we going to look at other people? You know, we're going to say, oh, why are you such a bum? Why don't you work so hard? Why are you so, you know, why is your life such a wreck? But if we say I'm only saved by grace, then I look at someone whose life is a mess and I say, that's me. And uh, my, my life's a wreck and God's shown me grace. And I want to pursue them, and I want them to be special, because look, at God, show, God chose me to be special, and, and that's going to be my response. And that, that's the only response that Noah can have. You say, I can't imagine, I, I don't understand, there's nothing remarkable about me, and yet God has shown me grace. And that's the center of the gospel. That's what God does for us in Jesus, is he forgives our sins, he gives us hope, he pursues us, that's why you're here. And so we, you know, yeah, are, are we worse than we thought we were? Yes. Is God holier than we thought he was? Yes, he is holier. But grace is more surprising. Grace surprises us. And that's the gospel. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you um, that, uh, that you are patient. Um, that you are continually calling us to yourself. And we do uh, ask uh, that you would help us to rejoice in the grace that we found in Jesus. And um, we do uh, pray um, that you would end violence in the world, uh, not by destroying the violent, but by turning their hearts to you, turning our hearts to you and giving us a repentant spirit. Give us faith. And uh, we thank you for this word. In Christ's name, amen.